This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 12, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The Capitol attack and the fallout from it have spurred a push for new federal police powers. It may not be Patriot Act 2.0, but the infrastructure laid by Patriot Act 1.0 make these new potential authorities robust enough that the groups targeted for special scrutiny and surveillance will continue to challenge things like probable cause and particularized suspicion. Cato's Patrick Eddington comments on the proposals now moving on Capitol Hill. Pat, kudos to you. And unfortunately for everyone, you have been shown to be correct on this point, which is as of January 6th, 2021, you were immediately out of the gate saying, we're going to get another Patriot Act. Dick Durbin, the U.S. senator, has unveiled something. So uh, what's in it and uh, what problems do you see? So it, this is one of those circumstances where I, I really do hate being right. This thing is called the Domestic Terrorism and Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2021. For those who would like to go online and take a look at it, it is S963. And you can go and take a look at the text yourself on congress.gov. Uh, the simple version is that this thing would create new so-called counterterrorism, uh, domestic counterterrorism bureaucracies within the Department of Justice's National Security Division, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and then all the way over at the Department of Homeland Security. And it would charge uh, all these uh, agencies and departments with uh, increased levels, essentially, of so-called domestic counterterrorism training with a special emphasis on, on white supremacists and neo-Nazis. The problem with all of this, of course, is that when you start to single out groups for special attention, it almost inevitably leads to surveillance. Now, I, I want to be clear that, you know, this this bill by Durbin uh, is not the uh, multi-hundred page monster that is the Patriot Act. Uh, this does not have a hundred and almost 60 provisions in it the way the Patriot Act does, but it doesn't need them because so many of these authorities have been around for so long and they've got access to them anyway, uh, that what it really does is it tells the bureaucracy we want you to focus on these specific groups. These are the biggest uh, uh, threats to our domestic security, and we want you to go after them like you've never gone after them before. And that is a prescription for disaster. Now, um, we should understand that when you are targeting groups of people, the standard of evidence that you use to accuse these people of crimes uh, can't be as high as it would be if you were targeting a crime that had occurred and you are trying to find the people responsible for it. And, and the issue, of course, when we look at it, let's just take the Federal Bureau of Investigation as an example. They have the ability through the use of a, of a uh, asset, uh, a capability under the Attorney General guidelines called assessments to basically uh, scan social media, go after any kind of commercial or government database looking for information on people. They can run confidential human sources uh, against these groups um, and, and individuals for that matter uh, without any criminal predicate. Let me repeat that. This is a de facto form of investigation that does not require a criminal predicate. So, and to be clear to, to, those, of, uh, to those who are listening, it's not like the FBI hasn't paid attention to white supremacists and neo-Nazis over the years. You know, at the Cato Institute, we recently got a, a response to a FOIA 
that involves taking a look at neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups. And the FBI apparently has 31,000 pages of information on the Hammerskins, for example. Uh, they have over 10,000 pages of material on the now defunct National Alliance, which of course was a, a white you know, Christian supremacist uh, organization founded back in the 1970s. They have information uh, that they have yet to share with us um, on the three percenters, on the Oath Keepers. So it's, it's not as if they weren't you know, at some level, you know, kind of paying attention to, to what was going on out there. But this all, this only underscores, I think, the larger point that I've been trying to make from the very beginning, which is there is no psychosocial profile that will tell you who is going to become the next Muhammad Atta or who is going to become the next Timothy McVeigh. It's, it's just that simple. And we saw tragically last week, um, essentially an exposure of the fallacy of the thinking underlying the Durban bill when this 25-year-old unemployed African-American man effectively committed suicide by cop, you know, when he ran the barricade down there on the Senate side um, uh, of the Capitol building, he killed a Capitol police officer, an 18-year veteran, um, Officer Evans, uh, and crippled another policeman, uh, Capitol policeman, before he himself was shot dead. So it only underscores the idea that if, that if you think that you're going to be able to predict this stuff, you're kind of kidding yourself. And I'll just say on a personal note, on a personal note, as some of our listeners probably know, you know, I spent over 10 years on the Hill working in a house office. Every day in that office, we got threats. Every single day. This happens in every house and Senate office every single day. So the Capitol Police wind up having to kind of work with each office to figure out, okay, are these folks really just, you know, popping off? And that's what it is, you know, 99.9% of the time. You know, that's what it is. People are unhappy about something that, that the government has done or something the government is not doing that they really vehemently believe it should be doing. And, and the overwhelming majority of those people are never going to be a threat. And the idea that you can take a look at a specific group of people, including three percenters, including Oath Keepers, all the rest of that, and predict with 100% certainty that somebody in that particular group is going to commit an act is simply belied by the available published peer-reviewed data in the fields of psychology, psychiatry, et cetera. So uh, we have seen uh, what is being presented as a spike in anti-Asian uh, violence. And uh, I don't know if the data bears it out, but certainly it, it, the media has covered it uh, with uh, a great attention in, in recent months. But to the extent that is real, there's no organized group as far as I can tell, that is undertaking this. Well, and if we think back to this horrible incident that took place in New York City, where a 65-year-old Asian-American woman, um, you know, suffered a horrible beatdown uh, by, by a, a single Caucasian individual. The really horrifying thing about that, you know, besides, you know, the physical pain inflicted on this, on this completely innocent woman, were all the people standing around doing absolutely nothing about it, Right. So I, I think that as a general rule, uh, uh, Caleb, you're probably right. That doesn't mean that, you know, you're not seeing anti-Asian uh, lines coming out of, you know, groups like, the, you know, like neo-Nazis, white supremacists, et cetera. I mean, that, that's, been, that's been part and parcel of the fabric. But I will tell you that the government itself, the federal government, is clearly engaged in some mixed messages here in, in that the Department of Justice has its own so-called China Initiative, which has been in place since November of, of 2018. In which they are quite literally engaged in racial profiling of Chinese American scientists, researchers in the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, who they basically are treating as a class of potential uh, intelligence agents or intelligence collectors 
by the People's Republic of China. Uh, so as soon as the Department of Justice and this administration abolishes, you know, the China initiative, then I'll believe that they're actually serious, you know, about trying to deal with anti-Asian hate. But when the government itself is engaged consciously in a program that targets uh, Asian American scientists uh, and basically presumes as a class that they are more likely to commit espionage against this country, when our colleague Alex Naraste has run the numbers uh, on this and, and looked at it, uh, that is simply false. It is demonstrably false. Uh, Betsy Woodruff Swan at Politico reported uh, recently a domestic terrorism bill from a powerful Senate chairman could create bureaucratic headaches, jeopardize ongoing investigations, and endanger witnesses, Justice Department officials argued in a memo sent on the last day of the Trump administration. So what do we uh, expect to see in terms of uh, administration response um, and congressional appetite for this kind of legislation? Well, it's interesting because that memo, of course, uh, was referring to Brad Schneider's bill from the previous Congress, as well as, as Durbin's bill from the previous Congress. Whether or not this administration is going to take a, a position uh, similar uh, to what is being basically billed as career folks at, at Justice and Homeland Security saying, hold the phone here, we'll just have to wait and see. You know, as I've said in, in what I've been writing for the last several months, creating these additional bureaucracies is only going to lead, I think, to more intelligence failures because you're going to have FBI and DHS tripping all over each other. You know, if I had my way, DHS would be abolished. The entire uh, domestic terrorism threat mission would be given to the FBI, but it would only be given to the FBI after we pass necessary legislation to ensure that they're not spying on people for political purposes. And we don't have that kind of protection in place. Now, what I'll say about the, the potential for this thing passing, unfortunately, I think it's very high. You know, Durbin is uh, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. This bill is being what we call redlined. It is, it is not going through regular order. It is not going through a markup. It has been put on the Senate calendar. So they absolutely intend to move it. And that would not be happening, I think, unless Chuck Schumer had signed off on it. On the House side, Schneider has got at least 173 co-sponsors on his bill, and that includes almost every single Democratic committee chairman in the House of Representatives, including the chairs of the House Intelligence Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and, uh, uh, and, and the uh, Homeland Security Committee. So this is a real deal. It's going to happen. Um, and uh, unless you know we get some objections on the Senate side that, that really serve to derail it, uh, we, we could be looking at this thing moving. So we'll just have to see how the administration responds. Well, this is uh, to the extent that uh, representatives and senators are responding to this. I can legitimately see left-wing House Democrats um, in the Senate, people like Bernie Sanders, Rand Paul, potentially Mike Lee, people who um, have a, a more rigid view of what civil liberties demand of of government, um, in terms of the pushback, this seems like it could be uh, pretty noisy. I think if if those who have traditionally been concerned about government overreach in this area and government data accumulation on citizens absent a legitimate criminal predicate, then there is definitely a chance to stop this. But they are they're going to have to act quickly. Uh, and, th and they're going to have to make it very clear. I I'll be looking closely at how the administration responds to this, because up to this point in time, the administration hasn't really seemed to show any concern about this particular legislation. And I'm not aware of any uh, statement of administration policy coming out of OMB on this. So those are some of the things I'll be on the lookout for. I know there are a lot of people, uh, you might call them grifters, who uh, are, are making a pretty penny 
uh, both promoting this as a significant threat and uh, people who are organizing within uh, the groups who were operating uh, both behind the scenes and in front on on January 6th. But to me, January 6th seemed like just a high watermark. It didn't seem like uh, something that would like be likely to endure. Is that a, a mistaken impression? I, I do think it's interesting if you take a look at the, the ages and to some degree the occupations of a number of the folks that have been arrested so far in connection with the insurrection on January 6th. We are seeing in, in many cases a, a skewing of, of the age demographic much older. Um, and I think that, you know, there is a there, there's a political dimension essentially to what happened between uh, the November election uh, and the and the January 6th insurrection. And, you know, whether or not we're going to face something like that again, I think is uh, is an open question. But there's no there's no doubt in my mind uh, that former President Trump was the primary driver. You know, a number of his folks, you know, continue to uh, tell the American people falsely that the election had been stolen. There had been mass voter fraud. Uh, and we know that that's simply objectively, that is simply not the case. So the question I think that's more more relevant, maybe more important to me is not whether or not the, the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and all the rest of that, groups like that that have been around for a long time, whether they are really the, the, the fundamental thing we should be worried about. I'm not trying to downplay the threat from people who go out in public with loaded weapons and and a mix of of, uh, of toxic rhetoric and all the rest of that. But we saw something very different uh, on January 6th. And this this whole political movement that Trump has started that appears to still exist um, may ultimately wind up being much more of a, of, of a concern from a, from a societal standpoint uh, than, than what we're talking about here. You know, uh, violence from white supremacists has been with us since the Ku Klux Klan, um, you know, started in December of 1865. I'm not here to excuse it. Anybody that engages in violence against another person, I don't care what the reason is, they need to feel the full force of the law. But we need to keep this focused on individuals because that's exactly what our standard of jurisprudence requires. And if we get, if we go down the road of trying to think that we can classify people by their affiliation in a particular group as being more inclined to commit a violent act, we are going to miss actual threats. Uh, and that's what we ought to be concerned about. Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.